what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I made a decision. I didn't get down, which is I didn't get fired, I didn't get involved. I stand by that decision. Whatever you guys decide, I accept. And they were like, all right, well, you're ex-found. That means that whenever we see you, we're going to deal with you. I come out, I look to my father, and he had this, the, this look on his face. And he had, it was the look of a, of a man that looked like he was about to see his son devoured by lions. He went and got the truck out without permission, had it washed, cleaned, whatever, and sold it the next day. But that boy shouldn't be in jail. It's too many things to doubt on that case. It's too much. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part six, and the final part, for now, of my chat with Evaristo Salas Jr., the man who was convicted of murder at just 15. Now in his 40s, and with less than three years to go on a 30-year sentence, Jr. continues to fight to clear his name. As we know, Evaristo Salas Jr. is found guilty of murder, shooting Jose Aurelio twice in the head. The judge would tell him that if he could give him a life sentence, he would, but he can't. So instead, he sentences him to the maximum that he possibly can, 30 years. Junior, a child, is now headed to a men's prison, a place where gangs rule with fear and violence. The population segregates themselves by race and predators prey on the weak. I'm sure most people listening to this right now would understand that prisons are not safe places. But to really spell out how dangerous it can be for a youngster in a men's prison, shortly after a 16-year-old was booked into Florida's Polk County Jail in February of 2012, his three cellmates punched him, whipped him, and nearly strangled him with a pillowcase. They would then urinate on him, spray his face with cleaning fluid, and strip him naked before wrapping a sheet around his neck, tying the other end around the window bar and pulling it so tight 
he would lose consciousness. They would repeat this attack three times over the course of several hours, without jail guards on regular rounds ever noticing. So now let's try and place ourselves in Junior's position. Take yourself back to when you were just 15 and try to imagine that you're being led into a giant building surrounded by fences, guard towers and barbed wire. As you're led in through doors and gates, they lock behind you and you're hit by an incredible wall of sound. The sound of prisoners banging on cell doors, screaming obscenities, and all glaring at you. Junior, standing at just five foot tall, looking like you could pass for a 12 year old, is quite literally going into the lion's den. prison the yard is where pretty much everything is, is handled or like when you talk to and everything it's always done in the yards uh, so that first yard I went to uh, was when I was kind of approached by the Hispanics that were there yeah and and I was kind of I didn't trust anybody so I had all these things in my mind by the things I saw on those, those videos that they showed us in the juvenile but they came and kind of uh, they helped me in a certain to a certain way because what they did is that they kind of told me all the rules, the rules that they had in place of what to do, what not to do, um, how to act, how to carry yourself. And these are adult, these are adult offenders, you know, I'm a juvenile. But instead of preying on me, which I, I thought they were going to maybe try to do, so I was ready to fight or whatever I had to do, you know what I mean, I was going to do, because I wasn't going to just be preyed upon. But basically what they were telling me is just, you know, kind of how to stay out of trouble or, or not get in trouble by other groups, you know. Uh, see these group of people, kind of stay away from them, they do this or that. So they're kind of just telling me all the little things that I may not have seen around the yard. Because I was so young, they looked at me almost as as a son or as a little brother. So they protected me. And not only me, but there was other juveniles that came a little bit later too that were Hispanic, and, and, and they did the same. Uh, they didn't take advantage of us. Uh, they gave us, they offered us things. I didn't take anything because I was like, I, you know, don't, don't, anything anything. don't take anything. Cause, you know, so I was weary that, but they offered me food, uh, things that I didn't have, you know, toothpaste, that kind of stuff. And they walked with me all the time. And they made sure that none of the groups kind of preyed upon us. You know? And so prison is basically, everything is race-based in prison. Yeah. Um, you go with your race first, and that's just the way it is. There's no right. ifs or buts about that. Yeah. You know, and there were certain predators that were there that were already known by these individuals. Even though it was like a receiving center, and these guys were just coming in from the county jails. Some had been there, you know, a few months. Some had done time before. You know, some were just, you know, cycling through to go into the prison. They pretty much were like, you know, stay away from this person, or they would kind of be around us at that time, and that kind of stuff. So in that sense, they kind of protected us. So it, it, it helped because it, it gave me, it gave us a certain amount of time to kind of, you know, to get used to that kind of environment if you can. You know? Yeah. And as a juvenile, it was, I was, I was grateful for it. You know? I still didn't trust any of them. I still was kind of weary of them all, you know. But here they are, you know, that they're making sure that nobody does anything to me or take anything from me. So that's a good, that's a plus. So Junior is relatively, for want of a better term, safe for now in what would be his new home. 
The gang, as he says, takes him under their wing and treats him more like a younger brother or a son, making sure that no one preys on him. Until one day, a law is passed and he's on the move. And then uh, I think it was like three or four months into that, they passed a new law where they weren't going to have juveniles housed with adults. So what they did is they, they took all the, the adults out of that, that unit and then just brought in all the juveniles from around the state that were already housed in other prisons and then the ones that were just being convicted and placed us in this unit right here. So we were, se- we were segregated. And the reason they did that is because prior, I think, 94, 95, a lot of these juveniles were being you know, raped, uh, uh, you know, being preyed upon, being turned into, you know, to do things, all that kind of stuff. So they had to, just like the county jail, they had to find a way to protect them. Mm. or protect us and so they segregated us and then they started just piling us in there you know there was juveniles coming from all over different counties i mean i was 16 the youngest one that came in was 14 and he had 20 years and so they were coming from all over the state it was basically within about eight nine months of being there you know when i got there there was 16 of us i was the 16th juvenile i had the most time and i was the youngest uh a year later there was 120 juveniles there, and 14-year-old 14-year-old guy was the youngest, and the life sentence was the most. And that just goes to show that that at that time, what was going on, you know, in the counties, in the counties that they were coming from, that they were just hard on juveniles. Sadly, Junior is by no means an unusual case. As he mentions, the U.S. has a tough stance on juveniles who commit crimes. In fact, we know that the United States leads the industrialised world in the number and percentage of children it locks up in juvenile detention facilities with over 60,000 children in such facilities in 2011. The US also sends an extraordinary number of these children, just like Junior, to adult jails and prisons. In fact, in 2011, more than 95,000 An accused killer, now 16 years old, has been certified to stand trial as an adult. Paul Gingrich was only 12 when he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. Gingrich is believed to be the youngest person in Indiana ever sentenced to prison as an adult. I'm uh, Colt Lundy and I'm 15 years old. It's uh, overwhelming. I got 30 years to spend five for probation. The verdict reads, we the jury find the defendant Jacob Mind guilty of first degree murder. Guilty at 16 years old. The mandatory sentence at that time because he was tried as an adult, life in prison with no possibility of parole. Yet again, Junior would find himself in a new segregated section with the rest of the juveniles that were being bussed in from around the county. Until once more, they're on the move again to yet another facility in segregation until they hit 18. We were there for almost almost 18 months and then decided they're going to transfer all the juveniles to a level four prison and and sent us to a place uh, called Quallen Bay Correction Center, which was at that time was known as Gladiator School because of all the, the, the stabbings and, and, and riots and all the terrible prison stuff that goes there. Mm. And everybody ever talked, was like, oh, this place is horrible. You know, it's just bad all the time. It's war and all that kind of stuff. But they, they put us there, but they segregated us from adults still. As soon as we turned 18, they just threw us into general population. I was still young. So when I went into the general population, it was the same kind of environment. Just, it's a level four prison, so it was even worse. It wasn't a receiving center. 
So this is real prison, where if you mess up, you get stabbed or you get jumped and that kind of stuff. The groups are real segregated. The gangs weren't yet control of anything, at least amongst the Hispanics. It was mainly race-based everything. And there were stabbings happening all the time. Uh, I witnessed two or three of them. Um, riots, uh, staff assaults were locked down all the time. It was it was violent beyond you know uh, beyond measure. You know? And for me, there was only probably about forty or fifty Hispanics there. But they kind of we all like I said they pretty much protected each other. Kind of stayed out of a lot of the stuff that was going on. They had their own drama, but it was like in the other unit. And, and, but it allowed me to kind of just kind of be separated from that stuff and, and, and it gave me a little wiggle room and then the fact that I, I was part of the gang that I was was part of before meant that even amongst the Hispanics uh, because there was there was two uh, two kind of dominant gangs and then there was there was one that kind of controlled everything mm-hmm. and if you were from any three of those ones they couldn't tell the other ones what to do so they would kind of leave you alone and just kind of you're still under their umbrella but they wouldn't be able to come tell you to be like, oh, we'll go, uh, go do this or go take care of this business. So here's a shame, go do this, man. So they couldn't do anything that to me because I was part of that gang that I was on the streets. And that gang had a little, little small kind of following within the, within the prison system, but enough to kind of keep them at bay. But there was other individuals that were coming in that were, you know, white or black, mainly white, that would come in and they used to prey upon their own people. They would take that little 18-year-old, give them a weapon and tell them to go do this or hey, go do that or... And, or do any worse things to them because they didn't really care about what happened to them. And so, you see, yeah, you've seen a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, and it was, a, it was a really, really violent place. But I had to go to a level four prison for four years because at first of your murder, you go to a level four for four years before you can go down to a lower custody. And then from there, I went to the Washington State Penitentiary. And I was, I think it was two years in Kuala Bay, and then, I, then they sent me to Washington State, State Penitentiary. And I requested to go there because that's closer to my home. Uh, Kuala Bay was like, and it was so far away from, you know, Sunnyside or Yakima. But uh, the Washington State Penitentiary was pretty, was closer. It was on like maybe a three-hour drive compared to like a 12-hour drive from Kuala Bay. That there, was it was structured. That's where the, the gangs are pretty much, uh, pretty structured over there. And they, they were in control. And then it was just, yeah, it was, they were, and then slowly they started kind of gaining power. Certain two groups of gangs pretty much, gained the most power and then they went to war with each other all over the system and because I was a part of that other gang I was a part of all that stuff too during that period of time I'm still writing letters you know still trying to you know proclaiming my innocence still trying to find ways but we're getting wrapped up in all this stuff over here I couldn't really avoid and so I was in a number of fights you know uh, I got attacked a few times uh, and it was uh, it was pretty violent I spent about over a 12-year period, I spent about nine and a half years in level five or isolation in the hole. Because of fighting? And because of fighting, because of my, my, my gang ties, my gang involvement, that kind of stuff, you know. And, and it was basically one, one gang was saying that, well, this is our prison. And because you're affiliated with this gang or were affiliated with, you can't be here. So we're going to either go attack you or you're going to fight or whatever. So for about, I think it was five, about five years, uh, everywhere I went, I had to fight or they were going to attack me. And there's no way you if can't, you can't turn my... around and say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not associated with this gang anymore because then you become a target again anyway. With the strange thing about it, it's pretty much the same. It's almost just a replay of what's going on you know, on the streets, but on, on a more serious level because now they're really established, they're organized, 
and this is their place, you know. If I was to go, let's say, to another prison that's dominated by one gang and say, look, I'm not with this stuff anymore, they're still going to stab me and try to kill me to get me out of there. And then if I do that, then, I, then they're going to send me back to where this other gang is, and they're going to go, oh, you didn't, you didn't stand up for yourself, so now we're going to stab you and we're going to try to kill you. Yes. Or uh, forget that, you're just going to stay in the hole for the rest of your time and you're never going to come out. And if, if you get labeled weak or something, then all the groups get a piece of you. And that's, that's the horror. So your best bet is just to fight every time you can. Stand with your own. If it's your gang, then stand with them. And, and because to do anything other than that is going to make it even worse. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Junior talks us through breaking away from the gang and becoming a target. I made a decision. I didn't get down, which is I didn't get in fight. I didn't get involved. I stand by that decision. Whatever you guys decide, I accept and they were like, all right, well, you're ex out. That means that whenever we see you, we're going to deal with you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One thing people say when listening to Junior speak in these episodes is how astounded they are by how calm he is about his situation. Well, he wasn't always that way. And in fact, at one point became extremely angry about his situation and started to lash out. Here's Junior. When I started that sense, I had a lot of faith that I was still going to get out, that you know, things were going to change. And as I grew older, um, my mind began to develop more and I began to become more mature and I began to realise it's not going to change, that this is going to drag out 30 plus years. I couldn't see past it. I became angry at the, at the system. I became angry at everybody that was around me. And I just, you know, whatever I could do, I didn't care. I, I, used to, I remember I used to say this all the time. Well, if they're going to have me in here for something I, I didn't do, then I might, I might as well make it worth it. They did me wrong. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. I go to what I know. You know, fought, got angry, and I was part of the gang stuff. So it just... You know, it went into all that. So I fought a number of times, and I ended up staying. I ended up being in the hole for for years, and that in itself was a, was a, was a mental journey. Yeah, I mean, isolation is one of the worst things that you can do to a person. Yeah, I mean, and, and I felt it. I get out maybe for a week here, and then get into it with somebody, or or get attacked, or that kind of stuff, and then go back. And there was one moment where I kind of felt like my mind was almost teetering, and it scared me. In the hole, you don't really, you you can't talk to nobody because you get in trouble, and you can't sign with nobody because you get in trouble. So you, you're basically it's just you in a room, and nothing else really exists. You know? 
every little noise would kind of send me into kind of an anxiety attack. And then nightmares came, racing thoughts, all the things that are classic, you know, basically you're going to say, you know. They come actually check on you. They have these people that come check on you. They don't really check on you. They come and ask you. They're psychiatrists. They come and ask, are you doing all right? You can be on the edge of insanity. You can be going crazy. You're going to tell them I'm fine. Yeah. Because if you tell them I'm going crazy or something's happening to me or I'm starting to have these weird thoughts, everybody on the tier is going to see that and they're going to label you as weak and then they're going to grab on It's just a weird kind of uh, prison thing. I don't know what it is. And so everybody just suffers in their own way. Mm-hmm. But you're all going to eventually go insane. And I've seen that. You can know if they're going to survive two or three years because there were long since in, in those places. That first year is usually when they go crazy. And I would see it all the time. Uh, these guys would just start screaming, uh, just start smearing feces on themselves, you know, screaming at things that are not there, um, yelling for their moms. I mean, it, it was just, it was a, it was a constant. Every day I've seen that kind of stuff. It was horrible. The way I did it was when I started feeling that I was heading that direction, I was getting too close to that, I started uh, just reading. And that's where I got into a lot of Eastern philosophy. And, and that stuff really helped me. I got into this little discussion, almost an argument with a psychiatrist, because I told him, I said, do you think uh, isolation breeds insanity? And he wouldn't answer me, even though he knew that, you know, I, I was taking a shot. He wouldn't answer me, but he goes, oh, you know, start. And then we just started having this conversation, just a general conversation about books. And he goes, you know what? I think there's a book you might like. And he brought me this book, you know, and it was uh, called The Power of Now or, or, or New Earth or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was about kind of Buddhist teachings, all kind of different things. But it it really kind of brought me back because it helped me kind of really realize what the mind is kind of doing itself. Because in those situations, the mind is kind of starting to cannibalize itself. It's going after every negative thought you can find, and then it's replaying it in your mind over and over. The book said, oh, well, there's a technique that you can use when your mind's in a certain situation. He says, you know, think of some memory that has no emotion or feelings attached to it. And then every time your mind heads off in these weird directions, you know, these negative directions, take it back to that, that memory. And so what I did, I just started thinking to myself, painting my garage at my, my house. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a mundane Something thing. mundane, yeah, I, I yeah. Every time it went, yeah, yeah, I just, I just went back to that, that moment. And, and so what that did is it created a gap in my mind, a little peaceful gap. And as I continued to do that, it was kind of a meditation practice that the book taught. Then I, I began to bring myself back, and then, and then I developed these moments of peace. And, and then isolation became almost like a, a, a garden of solitude, you know. It's strange to say it like that, but it, it became an enlightening moment, you know. And then I started battling all the, the emotional traumas of the past. Instead of running from those, those traumas and, and, and the things I dealt with, I started facing them. That was just the beginning. I had, still had years of, of, you know, of extracting myself from the gang, which yeah. came later. That wouldn't be an easy process to extract yourself from the gangs, I would imagine. Oh, that, it was horrible. And it was, it, was, it was dangerous and it was hard. But, and it happened... So I had got into it, um, I had broke my hand in the process, I got into like this fight with these other guys. I had grown up, like I said, my mother was real religious. We were always at church as a kid, and I think the, the single greatest gift my mom ever gave me, in spite of all her shortcomings, and she taught me how to pray you know, with sincerity. So at that moment when I was, you know, I got into this, this fight, and I ended up breaking my hand, I was in the hospital, and I was in this isolation cell, pretty big one. They couldn't keep me in the actual hole with the, with the cast on. And in that moment, I just... You know, I, I said a prayer. It was a short prayer. And I said that if I ever get out of the hole and get the opportunity to actually change things and leave the gang, I would, once I, I ended up getting out of the hole, you know, I went up straight to the, you know, the gang leaders at the time and said, look, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of this kind of stuff anymore. And, and I know you guys need to do your thing. That's fine. But 
And I was well known. I'd been in prison for 20 years. And, you know, they couldn't really accept that. You know, by me saying that, it was pretty much over for me. And I pretty pretty much put myself on a list where I was going to be attacked in one form or another, maybe even killed. So you tell the gang members that you you don't want to be part of the, this gang anymore, and they essentially say, "Okay, fine." Obviously, you said you make, you make yourself a target. How do you how do you avoid getting attacked? There was a certain amount of respect because I'd already there to know that I spent so much time in the hole. You know, yeah, yeah, so yeah. they were going to give me a little leeway. But I knew by saying that that there was only so much. Eventually, they were going to attack me. That's what I figured. Once I did that, I had already crossed that line. Some of them knew about it, not all. It's not like I went out there and then every single person, you don't have to talk to every single person. You talk to one or two people that are in charge. You kind of explain to them. They were all right with that. They were just, okay, just do your thing, you know what I mean, all that kind of stuff, you know what I mean. But when I stopped, you know, doing their little program, and what I mean by that is so they almost have a system of indoctrination where it's uh, education, they have these little things of education, that kind of stuff, you know, things you have to do in prison, certain rules you have to follow. So I stopped shaking up with them. I stopped kind of talking to them. Um, shaking up means like shaking their hands and all that kind of stuff. I stopped going to their little education programs that they have in the yards, that kind of stuff, you know. And this was a real violation, you know. And so maybe they assumed that I was going to go keep on going with those kind of things. And then I started kind of bucking the system, you know, like people that are coming in. I'm trying to explain to them that they to try to stay out of prison rather than stay in prison, which was a real definite no-no. Um, I took a couple classes that they considered uh, what they consider dropout classes or they're basically classes doing better, bettering yourself, that kind of stuff. And they, they don't like these kind of classes because they kind of take away gang members and kind of reform them and they don't yeah. want to be gang members no more. So they don't like you. So they basically said, these classes right here are classes you cannot go to. And I knew what I was doing. I was like, eventually they're going to they're gonna do what they're going to do. You'll make an example of me, that kind of stuff. But it never happened. You know? uh, I just continued what I was doing. There was times where I thought it was going to come where they were like, a couple times they came up and talked to me, look, man, uh, you need a program, you ain't doing this, you ain't doing that. Um, uh, some of the guys I knew for years, so they were, I think they're to a certain extent, were trying to make excuses for me because they were always coming to talk to me like, look, you know, um, just shake their hands, you know what I mean? You got to just stand with us, you got to, you know what I mean? So it's almost, so they, they almost see it as a sign them. of disrespect. Oh, yeah, it, it was it was disrespect. You know? I wasn't intentionally doing it that way, it was because I, I needed to get away from all that stuff. I didn't feel that connection with it anymore. I started seeing everything that I'd done up to that for that, for the gang stuff, and I started feeling guilty about it. And I started seeing through it, and maybe it was the education of reading all those books and my mind expanding and not being so ignorant. It's something they don't respect at all. There was a lot of tension. Um, I kind of felt it was gonna come. I didn't know if I was gonna survive. I thought maybe I'd be killed. And then uh, one day a big old riot took place in the yard. One of the most violent riots I've seen, you know. I'm obligated as being a part of the game that if there's a fight, you get in. There's no ifs or buts. We don't care what you're doing. If you don't get in, then it's, it's done. You're done regardless. It doesn't matter. And at that moment, I didn't get involved. I sat back. I stayed away from it. And they took everybody to the hole, and then they got me because I was a part of that game. They took me to the hole anyways. And then when I was in the hole, that the, my used-to-be friends or gang members, you know, they were like, hey, um, so people are saying you didn't get involved or this kind of stuff. And I said, look, I told you guys, I made a decision. I didn't get down, which is I didn't get in fight, I didn't get involved. I stand by that decision. Whatever you guys decide, I accept. And they were like, all right, well, you're ex-found. That means that whenever we see you, we're going to deal with you. 
Prison has now become even more dangerous for Junior. Not only does he have to worry about rival gang members, but also people he once considered friends, and in a way, family. Until he would get handed a lifeline. So now it was like if they see me, every one of them is obligated to come after me. By me not, you know, involving myself in that action out in the yard, that was all they needed, you know. And there was no one that was going to be able to stop that. So I figured that once I got out of the hole that I was going to be attacked. And I kind of accepted that to a certain extent. And the administration came up and spoke to me. And they said that, uh, well, we know that you left the gangsta. We know that, are you done with it? They had already know that I wasn't doing anything out there. I, I wasn't involved in anything, you know. And, and prior to that, I was involved in all the things, you know. Well, not all the things, but a lot of the things. And, and they know what's going on. They have their, their little set of people that are there. So they knew everything. And they were just like, are you done with the gang stuff? And I said, yeah. They said, well, we're going to send you to a, a, a prison where you don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, so it's a prison yard where there's no gang members. And I was like, I, I didn't really kind of believe it. I didn't think they would do that. But they were like, yeah, we're, we're going to send you to, you know, Arrow Heights which is a non-active yard. That was almost, that was a gift, you know, because, you know, I felt that, well, any other prison I went to, I would have been probably attacked, you know, for making that choice. And I came here, and uh, once I got here, I started, that's when I started. The the gang threat's not here anymore. They're all just ex-gang members or people trying to get out of the gangs. So none of the gang kind of politics exists here at this prison because it's everybody that's any affiliation or active in any kind of gang is not here. So it's all just people who are not gang members, and they have number of programs and jobs you can take. And so as soon as I got here, that's what I did. I, uh, I spent the better part of the seven years that I've been here and just working on, I took Toastmasters and I became a part of the club there. And I was would talk to these uh, uh, these people like these drug, not, well, they're not drug addicts, but they, they're, you know, reformed drug addicts, I guess you can say. Talking to the guys that are just coming in, speaking about, you know, how I changed my life, that kind of stuff, and how it's a benefit we start doing better. And I started getting involved in all these kind of reentry programs and trying to build in these uh, gang intervention programs. And so that's what I've been doing since I've been here. I started just building on that and, uh, and bettering myself, taking every program I can possibly take and, and trying to make up for all those years that were lost when I was lost and all that gang stuff. You know. When you left the gang and you said, you know, I'm out, and then you, they were moving you to another prison, were you l- kept sort of in solitary until you left? or? Yeah, well, I was already in solitary confinement because I was in that riot that happened. Yeah. Just because I was a part of that gang, they took me. And they originally, this was, was, they originally said that I was involved. And they had rolled me up with all these infractions. But I was standing with a bunch of group of other guys under a camera. And because I was standing under that camera, when I went to my hearing, I said, look, I know your officer said they see me directly involved, but look, just look at this camera right here. I'm standing right there and laying on the ground when that's going on. And sure enough, they seen it and they dismissed all those infractions. Then they were like, okay, well, we're going to release you. But then I had to wait in there to get transferred over here. So I didn't actually go back to that actual prison line or uh, prison yard. I went to this one. Right. So I had to wait there to get transferred over here. So I was three months in that hole over there before they sent me over here. Were you quite happy to be staying in, in the hole while you waited for your transfer? I had assumed that they were just going to let me out because they had, you know, they dismissed infractions. But the strange thing is that when I was in the hole, that some of the guys that I had known that were part of that gang were talking to me still. They were all, a bunch of them were still in there and because of that riot. One of them was like, I had told him, I said, look, they're going to send me to this yard. And he was like, oh, well, they got a hole over there. I said, no. And I told him, it's it's a basically a, a yard where there's, you know, where you're leaving the gang stuff. And he kind of took a kind of side of, you know, and he was like, look, um, look, man, you, you've done already too much. You know what I mean? You've been in prison for a long time. He said, just go over there and chill, you know. I mean, just go home, you know. What I mean? Another one kind of was like, oh, no, you should do that, man. You, you got to, you know, you got to keep on going. You got to fight with the gang. I was like, bro, I'm, I'm done with it, you know. So there was, a, there was kind of a large group of them that still spoke to me. 
there was a mixture of individuals that didn't like it. There's other ones that had been down for a long time that knew me for years. Look, bro, you know, you just go and do your thing, man. They didn't, they didn't want to see me in prison anymore, you know, you know or, or dealing with all that stuff. Yeah. But had I been released to, to any of those yards, I would have had to fight or get jumped by even these people that were, you know, part of my gang. And it wouldn't have been good, you know what I mean? If I go right now, like they pick me up right now and take me to one of those yards, I'll get attacked right off the bat coming straight here rather than having to be going to the line. Some people had those kind of journeys where they went back and got jumped and then someone got stabbed and beat up pretty bad, then got here. That kind of stuff. You know, some some individuals had that kind of journey. Lucky for me, for whatever reason, uh, I didn't have to face all that, you know, and I'm grateful for it. Because it would have been, it wouldn't have been good, you know. You can't win against four or five people, you know, no matter what. If one of them has a knife or something, you're definitely not going to win. You have one minute remaining. And that wraps up the first instalment of part six of my chat with Everisto Salas Jr. In part two of this episode, Jr. and I will discuss his eventual release and the inevitable struggles of the real world. While he's grown up inside prison, the world outside has continued to evolve and change. I feel like every time I talk to someone, I'm like, I cut my, you know, you know, you feel like you've heard it all, and then you hear more stories, and it's just like. Shocking. I almost feel like I'm talking to my therapist. Like I'm just like, I have a therapist releasing all my, all my traumatic events and turn to drink. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted, and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.